Flip over to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10 today. We step back into we step back into the middle of Paul's testimony as we look at these verses. He, he shared this testimony with the churches of Galatia. And there are several reasons that people share their testimony. Sometimes we share our testimony or the story of the work of God in our lives as an evangelistic tool. And honestly, I think there's really no more powerful evangelistic tool that we can use because no one can take away from you the experience that God, uh, the work of God in your life, how you've experienced Him. Now, we have to measure that against Scripture. We'll actually deal with that a little bit more later. But no one can tell you that God didn't do what He's done except the Bible. So if you believe something or think something about what God's done in your life and it's contrary to what the Bible teaches, then obviously you need to rethink what God, what you're saying God's done. But if it's in line with Scripture and you've experienced God and He's done something amazing in your life, no one can take that away. Nobody can undermine that. And so it's an amazing and powerful tool that we can use. There's other reasons. I mean, in, in our community group on Wednesday nights, we have spent the last two weeks really beginning to share stories. And actually, this is something that uh, I've kind of let our community group know that we're all going to do. We're going to take time and let people share uh, their testimony. And the reason is, is because it helps us connect. Last week, as a couple of people shared their testimony, another person says, wow, I realize now I, I, it, it's great to know I'm not alone in this. And so there was a connection made between people. It helps us recognize our own humanity and, and connect with people at that level and, and as we bond together depending on Jesus. And so it helps us build our relationships. But also, as we see Paul doing here in the book of Galatians, he's sharing his testimony as proof of his identity, the, the credibility that he claimed as an apostle. And he's also sharing it to, to shore up the legit, legitimacy of his message. And so these Judaizers... He had come in, they kind of followed him around. It was like Paul, Paul from the very beginning was dealing with confrontation and conflict from people that he taught and, or, or from because of what he taught, I should say. And he would go and he would teach and he would preach and people would respond and become believers in this gospel message that he would proclaim. And some people called Judaizers would follow in these cities after Paul left and begin to undermine what he had taught. They did that first by attacking him as a person, by defaming him as a person. The idea was, if I can take Paul's credibility away, if I can take away the reason that people look at him and believe that he's really a man of God, then it's easy to undermine his message. You see, if, if let's just put it like this. I mean, if you're standing in a courtroom and you are depending on someone's testimony to save you and the opposing side comes up and defames this person and removes their credibility, suddenly that witness is worthless. And so that's what they did. They came in and they defamed Paul and they taught that he was a false teacher. And then by doing that, it was easy to simply say, he's a false teacher, so now you need to listen to us because we're the ones with the truth. We're the ones with the message. And so he's sharing his testimony to really shore up his credibility and the legitimacy of his message to fight against these Judaizers. And as we've seen over the last week, this chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's what this is all about. I mean, the first two chapters is all about Paul 
establishing his authority, establishing his identity as an apostle, and, and really beginning to prepare to defend his message. We've seen him do that by sharing his unexpected conversion. Paul was a Jew sold out to Judaism. I mean, he was convinced of it. And that's what, what chapter 1 teaches us. But suddenly, on the road to Damascus, he's converted. His eyes are open. He realizes that he's been wrong. And God, God, God says, hey, here's my son. He's really my son. You need to trust him. You need to trust him alone for salvation. And now you need to get up and go to the Gentiles and preach him. And so that's what Paul did. And that unexpected conversion was the first point he made to really de- demonstrate who he was in Christ. Then we see his first trip to Jerusalem. After three years of being away, we don't know exactly what he was doing, but after three years of being a believer, he goes up to Jerusalem, meets with Peter. Peter doesn't, doesn't run around telling everybody Paul's a liar or a false teacher. He didn't see a lot of the other apostles there, but he went up, he visits with Peter and spends some time with him. And, and he didn't come back from visiting with Peter with a different message. He's still preaching the same gospel. Then, as he goes out from Peter, he goes into some other regions and some other areas, and he's preaching this gospel that he's been proclaiming, that he's come to believe. And not only is now Paul saying that God's done a mighty work in his life, but others begin to glorify God because of him. They see what God's done. Here's Paul's personal testimony. This is what God did in my life. Oh, wait a minute. It's not just me saying this. Look and and listen to what others are saying. And these other people began to praise God because God had obviously done a great work in his life. And then last week, as we looked really at verses 3 and 5 most closely, we see that Titus becomes a proof of who Paul is and, in essence, that his message is true because when Titus was brought into Jerusalem, the circumcision central, I mean the place where this is where they promoted circumcision, I mean, this was the place, just what they did. And Titus goes in there with him but leaves uncircumcised. So not only was Titus a proof to the Jews as he entered into Jerusalem, but he became a proof to the Galatians and to us because he went in uncircumcised, a believer uncircumcised, and he left a believer uncircumcised. And so that's what Paul's really been doing and really been shoring up. Now, today, as we get back into it, we're going to look at, at one more point of his testimony that helps us understand who Paul is, what he's done, and that it's all from God. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're just going to start reading. Um, we'll stop along the way and, and learn some things. Galatians chapter 2 will begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Of 14 years after Paul has preached, been preaching the gospel, he's been 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem, this is probably his second or third visit. We're not exactly sure. There's a couple of different perspectives there. But 14 years after that first visit where he goes up and he meets Peter, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And he goes with a group of guys uh, to, to go up for a specific purpose. He tells us, I went up because of a revelation. This wasn't, it wasn't Paul's idea to get up and go to Jerusalem. This was something God appeared to him or or spoke in a way that he understood this was God saying, I need you to go to Jerusalem. And who was Paul to argue? He wasn't one to argue with God. 
So he stood up and he went. And he met privately with probably, from the context of this passage, Peter, James, and John. There may have been some other people there, but we definitely have a good sense that those three men were there. Peter, James the Lord's brother, not James the Apostle, um, and John. And I appreciate this because Paul is going to deal with something that could be a very inflammatory circumstance. In our family, because of the different perspectives, there's two things we can't talk about. You know what they are? Probably very similar in your families. Politics and religion. I I can remember getting into a discussion with my sister about the Bible one time. It didn't go well. I didn't perform well. I, uh, I lost it. I got angry. We blew up. Both of us were crying and shouting. The house cleared. It was not a good day. I said what I felt like I needed to say. I just didn't do it properly. I didn't do it well. But that's what happens when people believe something like this, or they, they have their faith in something. We become so tied to it that, that if someone tells us something different about what we believe, and, and this, especially these foundational beliefs that really shape so much of our life, that they become very personal to us and, and we become very connected to them. And so what Paul's doing is he's walking into a situation. I don't think he really knows what's going to happen. I I think this could, in his mind, be a very confrontational situation. Because he's got a message that he's seeking to be approved in or or, or not even necessarily necessarily approved in. That's probably not the right perspective. He's he's going to to share his message and see how it's received, essentially. And and there's no no telling in his mind what's going to happen. Now, I appreciate this because it's so different than what we see happening in our culture today. I mean, today we have bloggers, we have podcasts, we have, we have preachers standing from their pulpit that are just defaming other preachers that are saying bad things about other churches. And they're doing this over the airwaves, I mean, on radio programs. And, and it, it, it's just wrong in my mind. See, Paul is going to deal with this, what could be a very confrontational situation, head on. He's going to go and do it in person. And he's not going to do it. In front of all of Jerusalem. It's not like he's looking to build a platform in front of all of Jerusalem and say, hey, I want you to come and listen to me so that I can tell you what's wrong with these people. He goes to them directly. And he's going to deal with this confrontation personally. You see, the other perspective or the other way that's being that, that, that we could do it, you know, standing on street corners and screaming out about how wrong someone is or, or putting out a broadcast that says this church is, is wrong, they, they, they don't believe right, or, or defaming some person in a public way without confronting them first. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They would follow Paul into these cities, but they would never talk to him directly. And so I think the example that we need to follow is Paul's. I, I think that we can gain a couple of things here. I think we can learn a couple of things in this. And see, I, I think that we can see easily that conflict and confrontation are a normal part of the Christian life. Conflict and confrontation are a normal part of the Christian life. And so we must, be, we must learn to do it properly. So I don't think we should go looking for it. I don't think it's that we should run off looking to be confrontational and, and, and looking for conflict and just, drum, dr- just making it up. You know, I don't think we should do that. But I think we should be willing to, stake, to, to, to take a stand for what is right. I think we must be willing to confront one another in grace with truth. I think we have to learn 
And this, it's, it's why I, I push Bible knowledge so much. It's why I want you to memorize the book of Galatians. It's why I want you to know it inside and out. Because I don't want you just hearing it from me and thinking, well, Seth said it, so it must be right. I want you learning it from the Word of God. I want it to reside in your heart so that when you come into, come into to situations, you can recognize that you can recognize that's not right. And I must take a stand in grace with truth. I mean, consider the things that we've learned so far. I'm, I was actually going to send these questions to my community group just as an exercise for them, but thought that this might be a good way to share them as I prepared this week's message. Based off the book of Galatians, why would we believe that there's only one gospel? I mean, if the book of Galatians is God's word, if it's really true and authoritative because it's part of God's word, why would we would believe that there's only one gospel, one way to God? Why would when we hear Oprah say, oh, all roads lead to heaven. Why would we think immediately that's a lie? Because in the very beginning of his letter, Paul says, there is no other gospel. Immediate application. We live in a pluralistic society, but Paul says there's no such thing. Anything that's not the gospel is a false gospel. There's not mixtures of the gospel that some people got the gospel right and some people don't. And we just kind of kind of mix and match what we want. You're either wrong in the gospel or you're right in the gospel. And we can know that because Paul teaches us that that's why he wrote this letter. Why can we believe? Why should we believe in a substitutionary atonement? Where Jesus stood in our place for our sins and laid his life down. Because Paul teaches us in the very beginning of his letter that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He gave himself for us. And immediately, Immediately when we hear someone say that the, the substitutionary atonement is a lie or, or which, I mean, honestly, and maybe you don't hear it a lot. Maybe you're not running in the circles where this is a big deal. But this is a problem in the church today. That people want to deny the substitutionary atonement that Jesus died for you in your place and He took God's wrath so that you didn't have to deal with it because you couldn't deal with it. We don't have to believe that. We shouldn't believe that. Why would we take a position that the gospel isn't about us first and foremost? Because in the very beginning of his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that this was by God's will. You see, it's not our idea. It's not, it's not driven from, from our uh, from our thinkers, you know, oh, hey, let's make this up. This was God's will. This was His work to be done. And so we may be the beneficiaries of it, but He's the central focus that the gospel revolves around. Over and over and over, we can see God demonstrating what the gospel is about. We can see Him using Paul to teach us what's right and wrong. And we must take a stand for what's right. 
We must take a stand for what's right, but we must do it well. We must do it properly. Me standing and arguing and shouting at my sister because she doesn't believe the Bible to be the authoritative Word of God. I was giving her truth, but I was not showing her grace. That's just cruel. It's cruelty. But trying to demonstrate complete grace and never bring truth into it is no grace at all. Because you're not really concerned for their good. You're not acting in a good way. It's grace. What grace is, is an unmerited goodness. It's something that someone doesn't deserve. It's a goodness demonstrated towards someone else in their best interest. But if you're not going to come to them with truth, then you really got no grace. They go together. And see, the reality is, is that this confrontation and conflict, it's a normal part of the Christian life. And, and this is why I think that. This is why I think that. Because grace-based salvation, grace-based salvation is absolutely against our nature. It is absolutely offensive to our nature to imagine that you and I cannot stand and make ourselves acceptable to God is offensive. Because really in our own mind's eye, we're really good people. I mean, apart from the revelation of the gospel, apart from the revelation of the truth of the gospel, apart from the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, we're good people. It's a common theme, a common thread that runs through every one of us. And even as believers, even as believers, we struggle with this. We, we fight against it. And we lift up our good works as if in some way they've earned us something. And we, and we depend on our religion. And if that's not where we're at, we're at the other end of the spectrum. And we're, and we're relying so much on His liberty that we're living in sin again. And we swing. It's like a pendulum swinging between these two points. We're either living in our freedom, doing whatever we want to do because we're free in Christ, or we're depending on our religion. And so as we, if we are going to struggle with this, if we as believers are going to struggle with this, you can be darn sure that the world that we, that, that we approach, you can, you can be certain that the, the people that we approach in the world who don't have Christ, who don't have the Holy Spirit residing in them, helping them to know the truth, leading them into truth, opening their eyes to see the truth. You can be certain that these people who are apart from Christ will think that in some way God will accept them because of their goodness. And when they look around at other people, they're going to measure them based on their own perspectives of what's good and not good. So it's easy for them to say, yeah, I expect that rapist to be condemned. But that man, you know, he, he just lied a few times. He tried to be a good dad even though he wasn't great at it. But he tried. It's not going to measure up. You see, the reality is, is that this is the conflict and the confrontation that we bring to the world. And, and being connected in Christ, being believers in and followers of the gospel, 
being made alive and acceptable to God, not based on what we've done, but by what He's done, by Him making us His, by His grace, we are automatically set at odds or in opposition to the world. We are counter-cultural in our views. It's who you are. If you believe the gospel, that you believe that all have fallen short of the glory of God and none deserve His goodness, then you are a part of the counter-cultural movement called Christianity. If you believe that Jesus Christ alone saves you from your sin for God's glory as a result of His purpose and plan, you are made a part of this counter-cultural movement called Christianity. And we've been sent with this message, this counter-cultural message, on a counter-cultural mission. And that mission is to go and share this message. To be an offense, to face confrontation and conflict for God's glory. Now, here's the thing that we need to fight against as I say that. This idea of being set at odds with the world, we need to recognize our enemy is not flesh and blood. Paul teaches that in Ephesians. It's not flesh and blood. But this mission we're on is a rebellion against the powers that exist in this world. It's a mission to go and retrieve everyone we can to tell the truth of the gospel, to confront the world with their lies, to show them the truth. And it was this very mission that sent Paul back to Jerusalem. As he goes into Jerusalem, I I don't think that we can assume that he thinks his message might be wrong. I think he's going to defend his message. I think that's why it was important that Titus comes along with him. In in verse 2, and really the second thing I want us to to take out of these first two verses, in verse 2, if you read it by itself, it sounds as if Paul is really concerned about what he's doing, about his message. And, and maybe I've run in vain. Maybe I've just been telling people lies. But I think when we put it back in the context of the passage, I, I don't think we can assume that. I think we can see that Paul received his message from Jesus. That's the first thing we learn in this letter. I think that we recognize too that he, he had been sent on this mission by Jesus. And he'd been given his mercy, or his ministry. Paul began his ministry because of Jesus. It was all a result of meeting Jesus. It was all a result of God doing this work in him and revealing his son to him. He'd been at it for about 17 years. For at least 17 years, Paul's been running around sharing the gospel and proclaiming the truth that only Jesus saves. Jesus plus nothing saves you. And in that time, he had seen miracles from God. In fact, we don't read it in Galatians, but you can read about it in the book of Acts. Paul, at one point, Paul, people would run and wipe him with their handkerchiefs and take them to their sick friends and put them on them and they would be healed. This was a big thing. Paul had God's power just rolling through him, bubbling up out of him. Paul was blessed by the Holy Spirit and the power of God was evident in him. I don't think Paul was doubting his message. And not not only that, he'd seen the fruits of his work, or, or God's work, I should say. He'd seen the fruits of God's work in his life 
in the lives of other people. Everywhere he went, he would preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit would fall down on these people. And they would do things that no one could explain. And they would see truth that no one else could have given them. And it became evident that God was saving people by this message that Paul was proclaiming. People just like Titus, an uncircumcised Jew. But Paul was on his way into Jerusalem to face this confrontation, to give his message, to defend his message. And I think mostly he's concerned that he's really not on the same team with the apostles, those who originally had been with Jesus. Let me explain that. You see, Paul is out seeing the work of God. He's seeing God's fruit. He's seeing the, the, the fruit of, of this ministry, his message and his mission. He's seeing it take place. He, I, I think he has no doubt in it. But if these apostles are teaching a different message, then that's a problem. You see, suddenly it's like there's two different teams and two different ways to Christ and two different things to be said. Because if these people who would follow Paul into these cities were right and they would come in and say, hey, Paul's a false teacher. Don't listen to him. He's lying. But listen to us. We're connected with the people in Jerusalem. We're people who were sent by the, the, the apostles in Jerusalem. We're the ones you should be listening to. If what they were saying was right, which that's what Paul had to go on, it's not like he could go to uh, Peter's blog and read about Peter's statement of faith. You know, it's not like he could listen and podcast Peter and figure out what Peter was teaching. All he could go on is what he's hearing these false teachers teach. If they're right, then there's a, there, there's a division in the gospel. And it seems like there's two different teams playing for the lives of people. So he goes up into Jerusalem to face this conflict, to, to, to confront these men with this truth. And we don't want to assume that God's gospel can be undone by the testimonies of men. We don't want to assume that if these people don't agree that God's, God's work is going to be undone. God's bigger than that. We can, we can see that God is sovereign. I mean, even in this letter, Paul recognized that he'd been set apart before he was born. God knew what was going on. God knew what this was about. But I think what we can also see is that this trip was God's plan to bring unity between Paul and his other apostles. God, in his sovereign will, was about to undo the testimony of all these false brothers. He was going to bring them in together and he's going to be, bring unity between the leaders of his church. That's what this is about. God revealed to Paul, you need to get up and go. You need to share your message. You need to bring the, and, and face this conflict and confront this issue. Don't run and hide. Face it head on. And so that's what Paul does. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Pick it back up in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so Paul, in this verse, just like we said last week, this is kind of a parenthetical set of verses, 3 through 5, and, and it lets us know something that happened while Paul was there that, that doesn't deal with the main thrust of, this, the, of these verses 1 through 10. But it is important. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Man, I love that. Another issue, another, another way that we can see that conflict and confrontation become a normal part of Christian life. When you believe the truth and when you stand for the truth, not, let me say that different. When you believe the truth, you're going to be called to stand for the truth. In fact, I, I don't see how we can say we believe something if we're never going to defend it when we live in a world that does everything it can to undermine it. You see, because we believe the truth, this is our load to carry. This is our burden to carry, to stand for this truth. And he says they did it so that the truth of the gospel might, pre- might be preserved for you. Speaking to the Galatians, but you and I can hear the gospel today in unadulterated form because men like Paul and those that followed. And the only way, unless Jesus comes back, the only way that the generations to come will hear the unadulterated, unhindered truth of the gospel to truly know and experience God's grace through the gospel is if you and I will stand for this truth. But it's going to lead us to confront people. It's going to set us at odds with people. Not against them, but on a mission to reach them with the truth. To show them their lies. To to help them see that they have been measured and weighed and they are found wanting. That they don't have it in themselves to be saved. But they must give that up and turn only to Jesus To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He goes on. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Most people believe that this this, um, phrase that Paul is using, those who seemed influential, he did it earlier also in verse 2. He's not making fun of the apostles. There's not some bitterness or some idea of tension between him and the apostles. This is what the Judaizers would go into these cities behind Paul and say. They would go into these cities and say, hey, these people of influence, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem sent to us to tell you Paul's a liar. And so they relied on the credentials of these men from Jerusalem. But they really had no right doing it. And so Paul is using this phrase, speaking to the Galatians, because that's how they had been told by the Judaizers what these men were. From those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul's not running up to them, scared of them, because they they are apostles. He's confident in his message. He's confident in his identity. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So Paul goes in. Faces the confrontation, faces the conflict, shares his message. They talk about it. They deal with it. And what do you know? They're teaching the same thing. They added nothing to me. And goes on, verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through... For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, 
and John, who seemed to be pillars, they appeared to be leaders in the church, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so what we see happen here is Paul facing this conflict, facing this confrontation, facing this issue, dealing with it head on, not hiding as a coward, but boldly going into this place that God has called him to go. He goes in and he finds out that they are unified in their message. They are unified in their mission and they are unified in their ministry. But they are facing a very diverse people. I want you to think about the good that came out of this act, out of this moment where these men gathered and dealt with the gospel and dealt with the truth and hammered out what they were believing and what they were teaching and what they were saying. You see, we think that conflict is so horrible and so bad, but in the midst of this, God used this moment to solidify the leaders of His church so that Paul could then write to the Galatians years later, he could sit down and write this letter to the Galatians and say, they didn't add anything to me. The gospel I preach to you is the gospel. Believe it and be with us. Deny it and face the consequence. They became unified. They became one. And suddenly, no one could undermine what they were doing. No one could take away from what God was doing through Paul or the apostles. Their message, the same thing. Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. Their mission, they'd been sent by the same God. The God who was doing the work through Peter was the God who was doing the work through Paul. He was gathering a very diverse group of people with the same message and the same mission. And that ministry, the physical outworkings of what God had sent them to do, the, the ways that they, that they reached out to people, they just wanted us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. To go into places where people are broken and hurting and preach the great, the greatness of the good news of the gospel. To go into places where people are broken and hurting and show them the hope of the truth of God's grace. To go into places where people are broken and hurting and have no means to stand on their own and show them how the gospel lifts them up and provides for them a great future and something to look forward to. You know, why, why would anyone have ever expected anything different? They shouldn't have. Because God is a God of unity, a God of, of order, a God who is about bringing people to a place where they recognize His glory. He wants us to enjoy Him. He wants us to be in a place where we can experience Him because He knows that's the best thing for us. There's no way He's going to send two people from two different perspectives on two different missions to reach multiple people. What He's going to do is give one mission, one message, one ministry to reach a very diverse group of people. Even in our church, 
a, a small church. Even in our church, we, we cross every socioeconomic line there is. Every one of us have different backgrounds. We have different racial heritages. Yeah, we're all melted up in this one Caucasian. Let me make sure I'm not mistaken. Any, but literally, people who remember our members of our church, we don't seem to have a lot of diversity there. But the truth is, we come from a bunch of different lines of people. I would love to see Hispanics. And, and I would love to see black people here. I would love to see us cross those borders because that's the picture of the gospel, bringing people and uniting people together. And I love that. But but we have poor people. We have poor people. We have rich people. There we go. Get my hand gestures right. We have poor people. We have rich people. We have old people. We have young people. We're a very diverse group. We have people that see things in one theological perspective, a reform perspective, and we have people in here who see things from an Arminian perspective. We have, we have different perspectives. We have different backgrounds. We have different thoughts and we have different, different, uh, lineages. We are a diverse group of people. But we're brought together by this one message, the gospel, to one God, our creator. So what are we going to do with this today? I mean, how do we apply it to our own lives? We see what Paul did. Well, what are we going to do with it? I think first we need to learn how to confront. I think we need to learn how to face conflict. Paul went up and met first and foremost with these men. He didn't stand on the street corner with a sign strapped over his back saying they're wrong. And he didn't stand on that street corner blasting the apostles. He went to them. He didn't write blogs that were just... just horrible and negative in nature about these men. He didn't sit down and write letters to all of his friends and say, I just don't agree with them. I wish they'd shut up. They don't need to be saying what they're saying. He went to them and confronted them. I think we need to learn how to do that. That's difficult, though. It's very difficult. But we've got to learn. Because this message, this ministry, this mission... It's going to require it. And honestly, I know that, and we even had this discussion in our community group, honestly, I I know that dealing with strangers at times is easier. But I'm going to tell you that in in, in this place, in this group of people, you are going to find a people who are loving and safe. And this is one of the ways you're going to find it out. Because as we deal with conflict and confrontation, and as we love one another as Christ loved us, and as we extend grace the way we've received grace, as we love one another in spite of our sins, we will be able to learn this is a safe place and that we can confront one another. One of the best examples I've seen of this in recent days is uh, comes from an idea from Pastor James McDonald. He's done a, a thing called Elephant Room, and what he did was he invited pastors from multiple perspectives and multiple philosophies of ministry and multiple thought of theology, and he brings them together to this place, and he says, all right, these are the issues we're going to deal with. We're going to hammer these things out. And they sat in that room, and they dealt with a variety of issues. I've ordered the DVDs now. If you want to watch them when I get them, I'll let you know, um, and we can set up a time to get together and, and, and watch through them. It's a whole day of watching these. But they're dealing with the conflict and confrontation. And when they left, they were better friends than when they showed up. 
and they had a greater understanding that they were all working on the same mission with the same message for the glory of God. Much of the richness of our Christian heritage, it, it, it exists because people got together and were not willing to give, give an inch. They were not willing to yield in submission to anything except the truth. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you know where, where we get them from? Is because as error began to rise up in the church, the leaders of the church would say, no, that is not what we believe. That is not the essentials of the truth. And so now we have this understanding, this essential understanding of what it is to be Christian because through our heritage, people were willing to stand for the truth. And so we have to learn how to confront. We have to learn how to do this. We have to learn how to be confronted. Not only should we be willing to stand up and say you're wrong, but we should be willing to listen to these words. I'm wrong. That's the thing. You see, Paul goes in with this attitude. I think he's confident in his message. I think he's confident in what Jesus had been doing in his life. But I also think he's going with this attitude. I think you can see it and hear it in the verses. He's going this, with this attitude of humility and teachability. I think he was willing to listen to what the people had to say. I, I think if he wasn't willing to listen... I think we would have a different, a different perspective from those verses. I really think that's why it comes across the way it does. Because he went with humility and teachability. He, he wasn't going as if I'm right and there's no wrong in me. I think he's going and understanding that he might just learn something. And see, any other attitude, any other attitude in every area of our life is pride and arrogance. We have to learn. We have to learn how to be confronted. And it starts with us recognizing that just because we can think it doesn't make it right. Wow, I thought I could be good enough to be saved. No, you can't. Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. I don't like that. Well, that's what Jesus said. Wow, I must be wrong. We must learn to accept the truth of God's Word and that there are others with greater understanding and are able to teach us. And we must accept that just because we can think it doesn't make it right. We must bring everything under the submission of the authority of God's Word. Another reason it is so important that you know the Word. And I think we need to learn to let go of our religion and cling to the Jesus that our religion leads us to. You see, I don't want you to think that all religion is bad. We are people. Physical, real people. We live in a physical world and we are going to do things to demonstrate that we love Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with gathering in a group in a school and singing songs of praise and listening to someone preach. Those religious practices are actually good. But what if it's not a school? I mean, is it wrong for Second Baptist to have a huge building that many thousands of people gather in every week? Is it wrong that they might view their theology a little differently? Is it wrong that you can go down 65 and James River has a huge campus? But 
man, we don't spend that much on stuff. We're willing to help one another. We're No. Get that thought out of your mind. You see, Jesus is what unites us. The Gospel is what unites us. We are together because of that. We are brothers and sisters in that. And just because the expressions of of religion are different, it doesn't separate us. Just because people have a different theological perspective on certain aspects of what God has taught us in His Word doesn't separate us. This is one of the things I really appreciate about the Acts 29 network. To be a part of the Acts 29 network, we have to agree, the leadership of the church has to agree with four things. Four things. But they partner in all kinds of areas with all kinds of people as long as the gospel is clearly proclaimed through these other groups. The four things we, we center on is we're Christian. We agree with the apostle, apostles and Nicene Creed. We are um, evangelical. That means that the evangelical group of churches, because there's different forms of Christianity, we are evangelical. We agree with the evangelical statements of faith. We are reformed in our soteriology. The leadership of your church views salvation from God's perspective, from a reformed perspective. God saved people. It's not based on our decision or our efforts or our work. However, we do not deny the importance of people's response. But we recognize God's work as primary in salvation. You don't have to, you don't have to agree with that. You don't have to view salvation in that way to be a member of our church or to, be a, to come to our church. But that's the perspective we're going to teach from. And fourth, we're missional. We don't just simply teach mission as a, uh, uh, an event that takes place or something that people do across the ocean. We look at mission as every work of God in and through His people wherever they might be. As we live life, it is mission. Everything we do is mission and should be missionally minded. The reason we are in a school now and we'll stay in the school for a period of time, part of it's driven by finances, but part of it's also driven by a missional choice. We have begun to make a great connection and network with people that need to hear the gospel. And so we'll stay in this school until we can move into a place that's more permanent and that will be lasting for us for a longer period of time until until that happens, we're going to stay here because we are now making inroads with people that need to hear the gospel. It's a missional choice. The reason that we gather in community groups in homes and and, 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 and gather in large groups on Sunday morning and we're not just a bunch of house churches loosely connected is a missional choice. Because we can do things that are attractional here and we're working on that. We're, We're doing what we can to begin to build that. That we can attract people to hear the message and then later connect them in community and in help them build deep relationships as they walk with others in this mission. You see, that's what it becomes. It's not about who's right and wrong. It's not about whether big is better or small is better. It's about Jesus. And it's about Him connecting us and uniting us. 
Now, when we see things that are wrong, obviously we need to say it. We need to be willing to take a stand for what's right. But for me to preach it from the pulpit and put it on the internet so that other people can hear it and try to defame someone that God is obviously working through and doing a work through is wrong. I learned this early on as I called people to, to as, as I challenged people to join us in this planting this church. I talked about all the negative things, all the things I saw missing in the churches I was a part of. I was like, well, that's not what we're going to be. Instead of calling people to this mission. God gave us a message. And that message of the gospel, the message of the gospel, it's the only message by which people can be saved. And He sent us on this mission to retrieve people who He already knows. And He gave us opportunity to do physical tangible things as we minister to them. And we find them in their brokenness and find ways to share with them the truth of the gospel. One message, one mission, one ministry sent by one God to a very diverse group of people. That's what Paul's doing. That's what Paul dealt with. And I think it's his example that we need to follow. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for sending Your Son, for providing a way for us, for giving us this one message. I pray, God, that if there is any error in our thought or anything that we hold to that is wrong or, or a lie, that You would show it to us. Help us to quit depending completely on our ideas and our perspectives. Help us to learn and know the truth of Your Word and help us to bring our lives into submission to it. And then God, help us to stand boldly and courageously, not yielding in a moment, not, not yielding in submission for one moment as we stand in grace with truth. God, will You do this work among us? And then let us see the fruits of that work beyond us. You're good. You're great. And I have every confidence, God, that You'll do this. Just pray that as we respond today, that You would help us to respond rightly and well. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We do. Come to a time every week where we respond. You can take of the Lord's Supper and celebrate Jesus' sacrifice. This is what we've been saved by, His broken body, His shed blood.